Hi guys, welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will. We have Brian with us today. What's up, heretics? And you guys know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, challenge the status quo, uh, which is what we're doing a little bit today, but not actually a lot. I don't think so. Is this, is this really challenging the status quo? Not really. I think we're like had? defending the status quo yeah. while also like giving a friendly challenge to the status quo. I don't know. It's weird to be on the side where you defend the status quo. <laughs> We're like, this is so weird. It's not controversial at all. <laughs> huh. It's a little odd. Okay. Also, someone else who uh, challenges the status quo is Warren McGrew with Idol Killer and wearing his shirt. Um, nice that shirt. was not on purpose, by the way. <laughs> just threw it on. And I'm like, oh, wait, I'm wearing one of his You actually shirts. just like it legitimately. What is that? So. I love this shirt so much, especially because I live in Reformed Central. So I love wearing it around with their Reformed fathers like, and dead men <laughs> fellow dead men. It's so great. Um, anyway, guys. So. Today, we're going to be talking about how to defend the Trinity, but before we get into that, we want to get into our favorite comment from our last video. And Brian, which one was that? Yeah, last video was uh, an, a first video of a new series we're doing, which is essentially media reviews, movies, TV, maybe some video games. Um, so this one was the review of Midnight Mass, and we had from Robin Wilson said, spot on review, I enjoyed Midnight Mass. It was scary, but not nightmare scary. I'm definitely looking forward to more reviews, and we have one coming up very soon. Yeah, uh, dropping Thursday, I believe. And from here on out, we'll just be dropping them at random. So there's really not going to be any flow to them. It'll just be whenever I have time to do them because we realized that people wanted more content from us, but Brian and I, uh, <laughs> our schedules are difficult, to say the least. And sometimes, I'll be honest, we don't want to sit here and record for two hours. We just want to hang out <laughs> as friends. So um, we're like, well, what's the way we could do that? Well, sometimes I have spare time uh, that you don't have. And you have spare times I don't have, but I'm the one with the studio. So yeah. I had to come up with something it's that weird I weird when I do. show up at your house at night and be like, hey, I'm going to go downstairs. Yeah, like I'm going to go record it. That's not going to happen. Uh, no. Um, so that's what we're doing. Um, plus, I love um, movies, video games, and shows. I love those things. That's kind of what I do when I'm in my free time. Like I either read and study or I consume something like that. Like... Um, either I turn off my brain entirely and watch something to turn off my brain or I'm engaging something in, uh, in books. So um, it's just something I hope you guys do. We don't see enough Christian like representation, I don't think, in media where they don't talk about it, at least maturely. Because like a lot of Christian media is like, oh, my goodness, they use a bad word. Yeah. Or, oh, there is blood on the screen. This is bad. And then now we have pure flicks. Cringe. And, uh, and Kirk I, Cameron, yes. Oh, <laughs> it's so bad. I like Kirk Cameron. but really? some of, I do. I think he's a cool guy. I mean, I don't dislike him as a person. It's just the stuff he makes. Is kind of Sometimes boring. those movies are pretty cringy. It's pretty bad. So... That's kind of the point. Uh, I wanted to be like, you yeah, look, Christians can enjoy these things, and let me show you why some of these things speak to me. Because, like, Midnight Mass has a lot of challenging things in it, right? But yeah. you, if you guys want to know my thoughts on it, go to that video. Check it out. And um, let me know what your thoughts are down below. We've had some really great positive responses. We've had some people that were like, woo, I don't know if I, how I feel about you guys liking that. Um, and I get it. And that's kind of what makes it an interesting show. So. Um, anyway, so that being said, guys, today we're going to talk about how to properly defend the Trinity. Now, we have, when the studio was being built, uh, me walking through the doctrine of the Trinity, but the production value was terrible. Um, we were very low budget. <laughs> yes, and we've since improved, and I think I've improved in my uh, presentation skills. So, but today, because... Uh, in a while, a while ago, there was a video that we did when we were ousted from the uh, Recovering Fundamentalist podcast network. And in the Statement of Faith, I made a comment about Al Mohler 
uh, L. Mueller's statements on uh, first order issues. Mm -hmm. And he mentioned um, the deity of Jesus Christ, uh, that these things would necessarily mean someone's going to leave the faith. I said, I don't believe that because I don't believe that it leads necessarily to that. I think someone can also deny it and eventually lead into fully accepting these things, right? So I just, I, I didn't really like it. Plus, I'm like, also, if somebody denies it, I'm not sure if that makes them less Christian, um, just maybe confused, or maybe there's some differences there that we need to talk about, but, or just general confusion, right? So people oftentimes deny things they don't fully understand. However, what ended up happening, of course, people take uh, an eight-second clip and they just run with it, and that's what RFP did, basically covered their butts on all the other stuff we had exposed. Let's just call it what it is. Am I wrong? Yep. No, you're not wrong. Okay. Well, to be fair, two of the three did. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, so when people do that, it's kind of crappy. And it's like, okay, let's take out of context clips and not try to take into what he's saying into account. And it's funny because when I've clarified my points to people and, you know, you've clarified the point with people too. Yeah. And people go, oh, it actually makes sense. I'm like, yeah. So, but people want to assume things. And plus, it's a really great way to try to discount some guys on it. Uh, over a statement of faith issue. If you're like, ooh, but we can get them on the deity of Christ. It's like, nope, we still affirm that and we still defend it. And we're going to show that today because we have another video coming out here soon where we're going to respond to Marlon Wilson at The Gospel yeah. Truth who's trying to put us down on this topic. And we're going to explain why we think someone cannot affirm the Trinity and still be saved. However, before we did that, we wanted to make sure you guys are aware of how to properly defend it because in a lot of people's responses to us, they have not properly defended it. Oh, it was bad. It was... <laughs> and it was kind of enlightening for me, because I hadn't really run into that before and realized how bad a lot of Trinitarians are at defending the Trinity. How many of uh, people on our side yeah. of this are bad at it? Yeah, they just can't do it. I was like, wow, that's not a great argument for what you just said. It doesn't say what you said it said. Right, exactly. Like, people even will reword, reword verses to make it sound more Trinitarian than yeah. what it really, the verse states. So our goal here is because this is a, a channel that's meant to equip you, help teach you, um, and give you a proper apologetics and theology so you know how to respond to different things. We're going to go through the do's and don'ts on how to defend the Trinity. Because some, I mean, honestly, I think the reason why you and I are actually pretty decent at this, and I'm not trying to toot our own horn here, is just the fact that very early on in our public ministry, you and I had to deal yeah, with we it. had to deal with this. <laughs> yeah, we had to deal with this with the Jehovah's Witness. So we had to go in with a lot of ammo, study on this a ton, and now it's like, oh, yeah, we're pretty good on defending this. But also because of that, I think you and I started seeing where the trip-ups Yeah, Is that fair? Yeah, and it's been kind of fun because since then we've interacted a few more times with Jehovah's Witnesses, and we kind of know their their script and we jump the script on them and that's kind of fun to watch them squirm a little bit because they're like wait a minute we're not supposed to be there yet <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're a little too familiar like yeah we know what you're gonna say so right and what was funny is that actually and many of you who listen or regularly know this we actually got this uh jehovah's witness uh person who they tend to be more arian in their doctrine a little bit more but not fully because they actually don't believe in a physical resurrection of jesus but um we got to show Jehovah's Witness who affirmed the Trinity, which was really cool. Um, so it's it's so anyway, guys. There's do's and don'ts to this. So we're gonna walk you through some things. Now, obviously, we're not gonna be able to get to every single proof text on God's green earth because that would take us way too long. And honestly, that's not the point of this. The point of this is the do's and the don'ts. So we're gonna show you the better ways, the wrong ways, the better ways, and then what uh, Unitarians and Arians and other people might say about those passages. So that way, you're aware. You need to know. What other people say about these passages? And maybe when you identify those things, you'll see where the confusion takes place yourself. Because I think sometimes the Trinity is something we've taken for granted as Christians, yeah. right? We just go, oh, Christians believe this. Well, 
depends on your tradition, where you come from, and also depends how you were raised and taught. Um, many people don't know this, but the Trini Trinity debate is highly debated in the Messianic circles. And most people hear Messianic Jews are like, oh, Christian Jews, that's awesome. It's like, well, actually, some of them might not be uh, Trinitarian. And now you have to ask yourself, are they Christian? Well, I believe they can be, but it doesn't mean that, you know, and we're going to talk about that in the upcoming video. So, guys, if you watch this, we're going to drop this video, and then probably the next day you drop the next video. That way we have them back to back so you can see the arguments of what we're trying to say here. And maybe you guys can get the nuances, all right? It's a lot of content, but I just want us to make sure we have it all out at once. If you watch this after today and go, these guys aren't Trinitarians, then then stop talking to us. <laughs> yeah, or they, or they attack the Trinity. Oh, my gosh. Or they don't take orthodoxy seriously. If you're saying that crap, you're just slandering and lying at this point, which we have already made clear, but this is like my official shut-up statement, okay? Like, I'm so, so sick. So old. <laughs> like, well, they're all like a bunch of, like, shrieking leftists. Can we just call it what it is? Or like they're angry. Act, they're acting like it, yeah. Yeah, they're like acting like a bunch of shrieking leftists or a bunch of boomers, essentially, <laughs> on online who don't, like, that just shriek and yell at each other and yell at uh, people who, while trying not trying to actually understand the nuances we're getting at. But today, just the do's and the don'ts. And then you can watch the next upcoming video if you want to know why we think that people who aren't necessarily Trinitarian can be saved, okay? And then at the end of that, if you still disagree with our assessment that these people can be saved, at least maybe this video can help equip you on how to better defend the Trinity. Yeah. Okay? Does that sound fair? Is that fair? Let us know below. All right, <laughs> cool. So, um, and uh, Brian, feel free to interject whenever yeah. you like. So I always do. Uh, that's true. I don't know. I'm giving you permission. <laughs> All right. So here, honestly, right? Many Christians believe in the Trinity, um, so, but don't really know how to define it or defend it. And I find that to be a major problem. When Christians attempt to argue for it, they usually appeal to poor texts and can actually can't actually rightly even defend the Trinity um, or even define it. And that's a huge problem for me because. People say it's required for salvation. Meanwhile, most Christians fail to even be able to articulate it. So this episode, again, will be important because someone did a response to us, as I mentioned before, and tried to defend the Trinity against us poorly. And it was like as if it was against us, as if we're not Trinitarian, uh, which we are. So as someone, myself, who's paleo-Orthodox, which means we're Trinitarian, um, this actually bothers me, and it has become very annoying to me. Um, especially since many Christians seem to believe that you must affirm the Trinity to be saved. Meanwhile, no one can actually define it, explain it, or even properly defend it, which has a number of issues that we will address in upcoming response video. But bottom line is, if you can't properly define it, explain it, or defend it, then you have no business saying it's required for salvation. You better be able to do that, right? Like, you better be able to share it and be able to do those things if you're going to say it's required. It's actually a fun thing. Hey, if you want to have some fun at church... Go around, ask some people to describe the Trinity to you, and and then and then if you get a good definition, then say, can you give me like an example? Like, how would you kind of what would you point to as a good example of the Trinity? And I almost guarantee you, you will get a modalism answer. Look up what modalism is, and then see if you see them give those examples. But um, modalism is a heresy that was condemned by the church too. Yeah, but it's like most people when they try to go actually describe the Trinity as an example, they give modalism, and it's kind of funny. So I, we had a Wednesday night thing several months ago where we were going through the Trinity, and it was so funny because the pastor had three um, examples. And I was like modalism, modalism, modalism. He goes, "Oh, you're right." <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I get it. It's easy to do. So it's 
you want to have some fun at church, <laughs> ask some people to define the Trinity. Which I've been actually doing a lot more lately. It's been a lot of fun. Um, and I like how Braxton Hunter describes the Trinity. Um, now, just so you know, Dr. Braxton Hunter at Trinity Radio and Trinity Seminary actually disagrees with me on the salvation issue on this. I asked him, and he disagrees with me, which is fine. Um, but I, I think the way he describes it is great, which is a triangle. One triangle makes one triangle, but there are three distinct points on the triangle. Without those three points, it's not a triangle, but together those three points create a triangle. And I was like, that's a pretty good way to describe it without falling into modalism. Um, you know, does that is that fair? I think so, yeah. Okay, all right, cool. But now someone else is going to be in the comments like, that's the heresy of blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, <laughs> I guess I'm not saved. Um, so, <laughs> to be fair, you stole from Braxton, so we'll just point you at him. Yeah, he's not, he's not saved. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, so the Trinity was a conclusion reached on the basis of multiple passages, but some positions are stronger than others, and some passages are stronger than others. Many don't understand how to argue for the Trinity and go to bad passages to defend it. And I was seeing this being done to us with pastors on our um, on our episode where we briefly mentioned this. By the way, if somebody mentions their position in like two seconds, probably not a good way, good position to go running around and blasting. That makes you CNN, okay? <laughs> uh, that makes you some CNN level... Uh, like yeah, it makes you stupidity. media matters. Yeah, of, it really does. Internet theology. Like, oh, he said two seconds of a clip and he didn't fully flesh that position out. I, better, I guess I better just run Canceled. with it. Yep. <laughs> Cancel them. No, don't even need to hear the rest of them. So it's, just, it's so silly. But anyway, so if you want to defend it, let alone say it's required for salvation, you better know how to defend it. So let's first discuss what not to do. So do, first off, as we've been joking here, do not argue like a leftist. And just shriek and shame people. I see that all the time. Someone's like, oh, I don't think the Trinity is true, or I don't like, I don't think this is the proper way to define it. And then people go, what? Well, you're, you are ignoring blah, 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 amounts of orthodoxy. This is absolute heresy. And they just shriek and yell and shame the person as opposed to go, well, let's talk about that. And maybe I can help flesh that out for you. Especially if, if you think that not being a Trinitarian means you can't be saved, then you should be giving them the gospel. <laughs> not shaming them. I, I, that's not. That's the wrong tactic, guys. If right. you really think they're an unbeliever, yeah. talk to them. So making claims without supporting them, because a lot of people will just be like, well, the Bible says ah, blah, blah about it, and they don't always support that. Um, or they'll make statements in general about the Trinity and not actually try to support them. And they just make statements instead of arguments. Making a statement about the Trinity is not an argument. Well, no, he's a God in the flesh. Okay. That's a statement. That's not an argument. So make an argument. And I was seeing this all over the place where, um, because once I did that, then there's like a subgroup that kind of came in and they all started fighting each other a little bit. And I was like, my word, I was actually ashamed of be, to be on the Trinitarian side a little bit. I'm like, man, you all are bad at this. This yeah. is shameful behavior. Get better. Get better. So <laughs> that's why we're doing this again, to equip y'all. So anyway, many Christians, I think the reason for this, by the way, is because many Christians are used to everyone being Trinitarian. They actually have no clue how, what the, why they believe it, um, what teaches it exactly in Scripture, and how to defend it or even how to explain it or articulate it. So uh, the Nicene Creed puts it in a fun little way. Do you want to read the Nicene Creed for me? You're the one yes. who's phrased with all the catechisms. Yeah, that's true. I should have this memorized. <laughs> I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven 
and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of the life, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son adored adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So, uh, the, of course, the most important part in there when he says that the Son is God of God. Now, this is actually the updated Nicene Creed, where they actually talk about the Spirit as Lord, and same from the Father, it brings in the filioque and all that, so it's like the updated one from mm-hmm. Constantinople, if, my, if memory serves. But the point is, that says, is God from God, right? So, Jesus born of the Father, basically before time, all these different things, and that he is God of God. So in other words, he's the same substance of the Father. So um, one, and a lot of times you'll hear people uh, exp- describe uh, the Son as eternally existent with, with the Father and eternal fellowship with the Father. So in other words, they've always been together. Um, so there's they've never been separated. There's never time he was created from eternity past. So that's a lot of times how people kind of explain that, where the, the Son and the Father, again, are one, and they'll use that. So um, anyway, there are proper passages, as mentioned before. So this is like the Nicene Creed, right? This is the Council of Nicaea. They brought this out, and this was, again, uh, it was kind of Rome being like, all right, y'all need to make peace with each other, you Trinitarians and you Arians. So we're just going to have you guys get together, and you guys are going to sort it out. Trinitarians came out on top, made everyone sign the document. Arians disagreed a little bit. Some of them signed it. Some of them didn't. Some of them signed it and continued to teach Arianism. It's a whole thing. You should read up on it. It's actually really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um but there are proper passages and improper passages to prove the Trinity. So because some passages just seem to indicate a distinction between the Father and Son, and people will pull those verses out thinking it proves the Trinity, and really it seems like it's more creating a distinction, which is actually helping the Arians or the uh, Unitarian sides uh, mm-hmm. of things. So that Son, so not very helpful. That, and they also be pointing at uh, they also be pointing at uh, passages that say like the son is merely working as a representative of the father, and they're like, ha, see, there he is, and people like people will point that out. Um, other passages passages seem to actually indicate that Jesus is God, and of course, the passages where it seems to indicate that Jesus is God would be the passages as a Trinitarian you want to push, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not the ones that have him. Oh, he seems like a representative, or oh, yeah. he seems like he's there's a distinction between them. It just it just shows that a lot of people don't have don't actually know what the other side believes, mm-hmm. and they just think, oh yeah, well, I guess you got to show that they're they're different, and then we're all on the same page. It's like no, no, no. like Unitarians will, will say like he's an agent of God, like he has agency of the Father, but he actually is not God. And it's like hold on a second. Well, then describing distinction actually helps their case. Or Arians will believe that Jesus is simply the firstborn of all creation, quite literally, that he was the first creation ever made. So, again, you need to understand the differences and learn to be accurate and not shoehorn the Trinity where it is not really present. And now you could say, well, if it were Trinitarian, it's present in all those places. Yeah, but you got to find the places that help prove your point of it being the Trinity, not the ones that will help prove their point of it not being the Trinity. If you want to make a compelling case, if you just want to type all caps on the Internet and feel good about yourself, then keep doing what you're doing. Right. But if you want to be effective, learn to be accurate. All right. So popular passages often used to support the Trinity that actually don't. So, again... Now, as a Trinitarian myself, like many of you, I believe there's 
hints of it throughout Scripture. But what I mean here by saying that these passages don't support the Trinity, I mean that if all we had was these and they existed in a vacuum without any of the more uh, pointed texts, we wouldn't conclude the Trinity from them. We want to find the particular text that very much more points to the Trinity than not. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. So, um, Brian, want to, want to read that Romans 10? Yeah, Romans 10, 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is, the Lord, is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with, one, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I saw many people pulling this verse out on us um, when we were talking about requirement for salvation. But this verse is actually very weak when it comes to the Trinity. You'll actually notice in Trinitarian debates, even the famed James White uh, does not use this passage to defend it. It was interesting. You and I skimmed uh, different Trinitarian debates, and we're like, Romans 10, yeah. uh, 10, 9 through 10 is not brought up because any studied Trinitarian knows this, okay? So... If you think this proves the Trinity, you're actually wrong. And you might go, what? But it says Lord. But here's the thing. Lord here is the word kyrios. Kyrios doesn't mean necessarily deity, okay? It's merely a title of authority or lordship. So oftentimes it is used in the place of God, right? Because God is an authority. And we already talked about God is a title. And so is Lord. Lord is a title, now, that's why there's lords of lands, right? But we also see this word used when people call Jesus master. They'll say um, master or they'll say kyrios. Jews would call their master or their, ra- I mean, their rabbi um, their master. So if they were particularly under one specific rabbi, they would call him kyrios or lord, um, their master, because he's, they have put themselves under his authority. Heretics. <laughs> so a lot of people confuse that when they see the Jews, uh, I see the apostles calling Jesus Lord. It's not necessarily them saying that he's God. It's sometimes them just referring to him as their particular rabbi, right? Their particular discipler, if you will, mentor. So again, uh, don't shoehorn it. And I guess, and guess what? The same word is used to describe a demon in Matthew 10, 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master, Kyrios. If they have called the Kyrios the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign of those, those of his household? So in other words, if they call Beelzebub Lord, isn't that how much more will they malign those in the household, right? So if he's, and that's the thing, we see this title used also to describe other people Throughout the Old Testament as well, will he see the word in the Septuagint, Kyrios, pop up? So Kyrios does not necessarily mean God, which is why Trinitarian scholars and debaters don't use this passage, because they know that they can get called out on that real fast. Now, is, is Lord sometimes used for God? Yes. And it's sometimes used in re, to replace the holy name, the Chechagrammaton, the four letters, the, what we would call Yahweh. And that's usually on a lot of English translations where you see Lord in all caps. That's what's referring to as the Tetragrammaton. Right, exactly. So, and that's because, again, instead of you taking his name in vain, we're just going to call him Lord, our authority. Mm-hmm. So that's important to recognize. Uh, then John eight twenty four says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, if you just take this out of context and rip that straight out, you go, oh my goodness, right there, boom, I am he, I am God, right? We insert I am he as, as an I am God. 
But read a little further, because again, it seems like a slam dunk when it says that I am he. But if you fast forward to verse 28, he clarifies something. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he had, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, hold up. Now, if you pulled 8 John 8, 24 on a Unitarian or an Arian, they're going to quickly go, yeah, but what is that? Who is he? He is Messiah. He's not saying he's God because they're going to say right here, he says that he is taught by the Father. Can God be taught by God? That's what they're going to pull out on you. Yeah, I'm just picturing like uh, someone is buzzing their apartment um, to be let in. They go, hey, is this the pizza guy? And he goes, yes, I am he. They're like, Jesus? God? No. <laughs> The pizza man. That's the, <laughs> the context here is not necessarily saying that he's saying, I am the I am, which we've heard a lot of people say. Right, exactly. It's I am the Messiah. And he talks about actually later on, he makes a distinction between him and the father, which again, I know as Trinitarians, we have no problem with a distinction between the father and son. But Arians and Unitarians are going to push on that distinction between father and son. Okay. So, so these passages seem strong, these last two, until you read them further, and it seems to create actually a stronger distinction between father and son. Now, such a distinction is not a problem, again, for the Trinitarian, because we affirm that there is a distinction between them, but those who are not Trinitarian will not feel any pressure of a Trinitarian in an argument, especially here, since the distinction seems to add a stronger case for their own side because they're the ones making the biggest distinction. So if you go to passages where a distinction is made, they're going to capitalize on that. Yeah. yeah. We've seen this with the political debates in the last few years, right, where two different sides can be using the same evidence for different conclusions, right? Like you can see conservative side, oh, CNN said this is bad. They're stupid. They're wrong. So therefore, I know I'm right. And Democrats... CNN said this is bad, therefore it's bad. If you go, well, CNN said it was bad, and you think, and you think that proves your point, no, you you're just given the same evidence that they're using right. from the opposite side. So don't just because it is evidence of something doesn't mean it's evidence of your conclusion exclusively. Right, and people can use that same evidence for different conclusions. So careful on this. So again, if and it's, this is why I think so many Christians become uh, Jade. Jehovah's Witnesses when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock it if they can get their foot in the door because they have a strong case and they're going to be showing this to Christians like see the distinction does that sound like God to you does he need to be taught by the father if Jesus is God why does he have to be taught by the father if Jesus is God then uh he why was he sent by God that doesn't make sense God sends himself to himself for himself and he has to please himself like, you know, so they're going to be pointing these out that, well, this makes more sense if he's an agent from God, right? And so, they study several hours a day, every single day, every single week to prove Trinitarians wrong. So I love that some Christians are like, oh, I would love a JW to come to my door. I'll tell them what it is. I'm like, you haven't even studied what they believe at all. You have, you are very susceptible for, to their arguments. Right. It actually <laughs> they is, know what you think. You don't know what they think. And I've seen it where Christians like are hearing these arguments, and you can almost see the panic in a Christian's face because the floor starts feeling like it's falling from beneath them, mm-hmm. which is why they might, might go, maybe there's some truth to this, right? And 
so again, and in, in all of the John uh, John passages, there's a lot of passages and passages in John that where he says "I am," right? But "I am" statements can help build your case for showing that Jesus is hinting to his deity. But remember, he's these are things that would be hints because if he ever said "I am that I am," instant death because that would be straight up blasphemy. Okay, so he has to hint. Maybe, perhaps. So you can use these statements maybe to help bolster your case, but these are not places you want to go to begin your case. Make sense? It does. Okay. So he says, I am the bread of life in John 6. He says, I am the light of the world in John 8. He says, I am the gate of the sheepfold in John 10. He says that he is the good shepherd in John 10. He says he is the resurrection and the life in John 11. And he says he is the way, the truth, and the life in John 14 and the true vine, which is in John 15. Fun fact about, you, about it, the way, the truth, and the life is also used to describe the Torah in, <laughs> in the Old Testament, which is interesting. So That's cool. Um, so anyway... Issue is solely depending on these statements that he says, I am, insert whatever descriptor you want here. Uh, he doesn't say, I am that I am. And if you think a Unitarian or an Arian is not going to push that on you, be like, that doesn't say I am that I am. It says that he is the bread of life, um, which would be just messianic. He's the light of the world, which again would be he's offering salva God's salvation to all. Um, you know, the gate of the sheepfold. He is a good shepherd. Well, Pastors are called shepherds. That doesn't make them God, right? I am the resurrection of life. Well, of course, because through his gift, you have eternal life, and he resurrected, so he is the resurrection of the life. doesn't mean he's God. God doesn't need to resurrect. He's already alive eternally. These are the things you're going to hear, okay? Uh, the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, he's the way. He's the way to God. He's the truth because he's bringing the truth, and he's the life. You have new life through him as a Messiah. And now I know what Christians are going to say, but... No one can forgive sins, which I agree, besides God. No, um, no one can forgive your sins on behalf of God besides God. But also, then they and then also they're going to go, well, none of this makes sense if he's not God. God cannot, only God can bring an atonement like that. And I would first say, I think, you know, you can make that logical deduction, but I don't think you can necessarily make as strong of a case on that as you might wish you could especially if God gives someone agency to do so on his behalf. Well, and again, it's just a statement. And I've heard you and Trinitarian say, like, well, Jesus was Messiah. Messiah can't be God. Another statement. So if that's not convincing to you, these statements might not be convincing to them. Exactly. Thank you for clarifying that you're for welcome. me. Words are hard. Um, but no, you're right, because if I just go, well, only God can do that. Well, that's a statement. That's not an argument. And they would just say, well, only, um, well, yeah, exactly. Only God can't be a Messiah. And that's going to be their statement. Well, now you guys are both making statements. <laughs> You're not really getting into the text. So again, issue is solely depending on these statements is that he says, I am whatever, is that he never says, I am that I am, because that would have been heresy, blasphemy, and gotten him killed. So thus, the Trinitarian can and should defer to these as saying Jesus is hinting at his deity by giving himself attributes only given to God or his word, which we'll talk about that here when we get to John chapter 1. But not saying it straight out, lest he be killed for blasphemy. Okay? And Jesus had a mission to do first. So the non-Trinitarian could say that these are merely Jesus saying that he has various descriptors and never does anything, um, and never does anything saying something like, I'm, I am God, right? So... Not unless you say, I am that I am, which means I am the self-existing one, 
Otherwise, they would say you don't have a case, okay? Thus, on their own, these passages are not strong enough as we would like them to be in order to make a case. Once we use the proper passages, we could reach a stronger conclusion using these passages. And what I was seeing when people were actually disagreeing with us, like, you're wrong, and they just started throwing these at us like we're not Trinitarians, um, which also shows that, again, that leftist tactic. You know, like how when, nowadays if you say something to the effect of like, yeah, but like women need to take responsibility for things too, and instantly the street can call you a misogynist and say you hate women? Yeah. When you just made the case of like, yeah, I mean, I'm for women, but I feel like we need to like temper that a little bit with also make sure we don't take responsibility of their lives away from them and just let them blame everything else. Well, then everyone shrieks at you and calls you a misogynist. Kind of the same thing was happening with the Trinitarians. Us going, hey, I don't think this is the best way to go about it. Everyone shrieks and attacks. Uh, it's like, well, you're not, you're not listening to what I'm saying. Yeah. So, um, Brian, you want to talk about Mark? Mark chapter 1. 9 through 10 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That's a different translation than I'm used to. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, yeah, a lot of people will point to this and go, See? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right there in one verse. Boom, done. It's but, all concluded. But does it say that that's the Trinity or that no. all those people, like the Father, Son, and the and the uh, Spirit are all God? Yeah. It's drawing a distinction between the Father and the Son, and we're seeing the Holy Spirit work in the way that the Holy Spirit works, but they would just say the Spirit of God. there, And there is the manifestation of the Spirit of God as an active force in visible form descending on the Son. Right, and the Son, and God just blessing the Son. Because, and then also they might even point out, why would God have to bless the Son if he is already God? Yeah. So they would be pointing these things out. And a lot of Christians are like, right here. Well, just because you show the fact that there's the three members of the Trinity in a verse does not mean you just prove the Trinity. Because they're just going to define those things differently. So, again, I'm not trying to be a jerk here. I'm just trying to get you guys, to, maybe our listeners, to understand why these passages don't work as well as people seem to think. So non-Trinitarians, again, would just point out that the voice is simply the Father speaking, his spirit descending on Jesus, and that they wouldn't assign personhood to the spirit. Then they'd show the Son is obviously separate from the Father. Otherwise, why is he even speaking separately? Okay. So Trinitarians would say that these are all three members of the Trinity revealed to man, all in their respective positions. Though this is true that all three Trinity members are present, this again speaks of the three persons, but not of the same being. We see three maybe persons here, but not the same being, okay? Um, it's not very clear in this verse. So the problem is that most people who attempt to defend the Trinity simply think finding a spot that calls Jesus Lord or a spot that happens to mention each member of the Trinity suddenly means they've proven their case. However, that is not the case when it comes to the Trinity. The Trinity must be proven by showing that Jesus is explicitly called God and that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person who is fully God. And that last part, I think, is what's quite often missed if people go, yep, see, prove Jesus is God, therefore Trinity. It's like, no, you only got to the second one. <laughs> right. Like, don't forget about the Holy Spirit, please. He's right, right here. <laughs> he got, he's in the room, guys. Like, <laughs> this is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I mean, seriously though, like a lot of times we're like, ah, Trinity proven. No, you prove, you may have helped prove the deity of Christ, but you haven't proved the Trinity because you also have to prove the same thing about the Spirit. Yeah. I've noticed that the Father is actually the least controversial one. Yeah, everyone's mind. like, oh, that's God. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> like, Psh, we all agree, Father. All right, cool, we agree who the Father is. Now we got to make sure that we agree that the Spirit and the Son are also equal, equated as God. Um, so let, let's go ahead and talk about that. So, um, so the Trinity must be proven again by showing that Jesus is explicitly called God. Okay. That's going to be our goal going forward and that the spirit is too. So, however, I do want to make sure we're clear on this. The controversy was called the filioque, uh, which is simple, essentially whom does the spirit, uh, proceed from the father or the son. Many people see, uh, seem less concerned with how someone defines the spirit as much as they care about how one defines the son which I find this ironic, right? So if you don't affirm this Trinity, you're not saved. I mean, not, not the Trinity. If you don't affirm Jesus' deity, that's what mm -hmm. I hear. If you don't affirm Jesus' deity, you're not saved because you, you deny the very nature of Jesus, and therefore it's a different Jesus. But meanwhile, they do not have the same passion about the very Holy Spirit that indwells us. Yeah. And they will disagree on the nature of the Holy Spirit, and they can do that, and that doesn't question your salvation. Yeah. But... You do it with the sun and it's game over. And to me, that's an inconsistency because if the Trinity is the Trinity and the Trinity is true, then all of them are equally God in the Godhead. So if you have to understand the full nature of the of the son in order to be saved, then you better be able to understand the full nature of the spirit and the father. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're not saved, period. You don't get to say that you have to have one for the son and then ex nay out the spirit. You don't get to do that. It's either you have to have a fully accurate view of the spirit and the son and the father or you don't to be saved yeah that's okay. why we would have that argument against mormons and say they don't have a good understanding of the father they right. think the father is a man who was essentially ascends to get his own planet right so he they have zero understanding of the father it's a different father with the same titles and names but it's actually totally different defined entirely different mm -hmm. um their entire story is, sounds more like a bad sci-fi than it does Actually, anything to do with Christianity. Just has Christian, Christianese titles to yeah. them. And Jehovah's Witnesses don't even believe in a bodily resurrection, but of a spiritual one. So not only do they misunderstand the nature of the Son, they actually completely deny the nature of his own resurrection. Which would then be a problem for Romans 10.9, which is given in a very explicit explanation of how you are saved. Right, and same with 1 Corinthians 13 and all the, many other areas. So... Because that's the problem when, you, when we make this kind of discussion. People are like, well, psh, I guess J-dubs and Mormons are in. I'm like, well, no, you're not understanding the distinctions that are being made here. Um, so let's talk about a better way to defend the Trinity. I, I just want to first get get that out of the way. Bad ways to defend the Trinity. Do you want to talk about that anymore right now? No, I think, we, I think we beat that one to death. Beat it to death? Cool. This will ho hopefully be the fun part of the episode. <laughs> so how to better defend the Trinity? Let's have a more optimistic yes. conversation. <laughs> and I will tell you how other people look at this, and I'll quickly give you a way to respond, okay? Um, so John chapter 1, <laughs> 1 through 18. I don't want to know if I want to read the entire thing, but I'm just going to read you parts of it, okay? So verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this is really interesting because who's in the word beginning? The word. 
The word is the word logos there, uh, which is logic, essentially, is where we get the word from. So the logic of God, the mind of God, you could say, the word of God, the Torah of God, however you want to word this. In the beginning, what's the word? The word was with God, and the word what? Was, was God. God, right? Because you can't, you can't separate God's mind and his thoughts from his being, right? Those are... One, I mean, I can't separate my thoughts from my being. I, my thoughts are part of who I am, mm -hmm. um, distinctly my own. So um, then also it says that in starting verse 9, true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And by the way, who created all things uh, in Genesis 1? God. <laughs> God did. So if we're talking about whoever this was who is the word, uh, and the world was made through him. Well, Genesis 1 versus this sounds like to me God and God are creating things, right? Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then it goes on to say that the word became flesh in verse 14 and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as the only son. From the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, there you go. So the Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh. So if the Word is God and he becomes flesh to dwell among us, who is he? If he's Jesus, God. Yeah. He's, that would... cr he's creating. He's claiming the Jews as his people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All things the Old Testament is pointing to is just exclusively God. So this is probably one of the strongest proof texts. If you don't go to John chapter 1, uh, this is where you're going to get, that's where you'll get mowed down, is if you don't know how to do chapter 1. Now, there's a few things I want to talk about, of course, on the opposition of what they're going to say about John chapter 1. But first off, I wanted to point that out. Okay, John chapter 1 is a strong proof text for Trinitarians. Which I don't um, think anyone, when we were having these arguments online, ever went to John 1. No one pulled John 1 out. <laughs> I was over there like, guys, oh my word, I'm like on your side, you're attacking me, but I can defend this better than you. Let me argue me for you. <laughs> <laughs> like, honestly, it's so sad, isn't it? <laughs> Um, so some might say this is merely described in this, what Unitarians and other people say, some people will say this is merely describing something more mystical. And there's been rabbis that have been like, this just sounds like more Jewish mysticism to me. Um, and in fact, uh, Sheen as an alternate media mentioned a book and I have it on my reading list and I don't remember it right now, but it's written by a rabbi who read John and he was like, oh, this is a super mystical book. And this is, and no wonder why people misunderstand it and believe in the Trinity because they, um, they misunderstand what this means. I have been on my reading list. I want to check it out. I want to see what they have to say about it. Um, because, again, if you don't know your opposition to understand them, then how are you ever going to respond to them? But I haven't bought the book yet. So I, I'm clearly speaking of ignorance here. So Seamus, <laughs> if I completely butchered that, I apologize, buddy. Um, but anyway, but there's a very mystical side to it, many will say, as in the word that becomes flesh and the word was God, etc. That is a very mystical statement because, uh, and if you actually read, like I've read the Jewish Tanya and the way they talk about the word and the and the Torah and the mind of God and how it's like an... They, there, there is a, this like Jewish side to that that I could see where if you're from a Judaic perspective, you might come to that conclusion. Um, I don't have time to get into all of it right now, but I'm just letting you know that there's definitely like, like no, no, the word is the Torah and the Torah was with God. And that's why the Torah was written down because that's the mind of God written down. So it was really the mind of God that emanated through Jesus Christ, not that Jesus is God himself. It's the, the mind of God emanating into Messiah. 
So that's kind of the way they would go yeah. about it. It's, it's a bit different. And I know you guys, are, some of you Christians are like, whoa, what? And that's because we uh, tend to take a more literal approach to the text where other groups might take a bit more of a, I don't want to say, always say mystical, but a mystical, philosophical, and a little bit more of a, what's the word? Non-literal. No, I want. I don't want to say nuanced, but a little bit more. I, I have. I'm having. Oh, and a nuanced and more ambiguous approach, like where it's like, well, no, no, this is uh, flexing with certain concepts as opposed to trying to actually give you a literal description. Okay, um, and by the way, we do that all the time too. Like in Revelation, we will be like, oh, these are more ambiguous, nuanced texts that are trying to give you a concept as opposed to something literal, right? Like as like. We don't actually think there's going to be these little demons flying around with like scorpion tails and a lion's head and all these <laughs> things. Like, you know, so they'd be kind of going like, no, it's a very mystical uh, approach. Okay. Now, again, you don't have to agree, but I'm just letting you know what might be coming after you. <laughs> well, you're welcome for when you engage in those conversations. Remember this. Um, so anyway, this view essentially would say, what the Unitarians would say is that Jesus is the mind of God in the flesh, that the Torah becomes flesh. This is what many Unitarians will say, and he's more of a personification, if you will, or an emulation of God than God himself. So that'll be one way they describe John chapter 1. However, as a Trinitarian, what you should do, um, and all the Trinitarian really needs to do is push back and show, and point that it says that the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This seems to be describing uh, a mystical incarnation than anything else. Be like, well, no, I, it's not just the mind of God. This is literally God himself. This seems to be, yes, mm -hmm. it's mystical, but it's the, in, the, myst, the mysticalness of the incarnation itself. And you should be pushing that. So push more the literal approach. However, I do want to warn you about something that might come at you, mm. uh, especially for Jehovah's Witnesses. You know yeah. about this. You, oh, want to yeah. you want to read that note? Yeah, so the word was a God is what they'll say. They'll insert this essentially definite article. Um, and if you're not used to or familiar with some of the Old Testament scholarship, um, you'd know that God is just another title that's given a lot of times. And they'll point to other like um, divine beings as, as God-like, right? We even have... There's a whole argument about um, uh, when they're in the furnace, and the king's like, "Oh, there's it, there it is, the Son of God." And some Christians will see, "Oh, he just properly identified Jesus sitting there in the furnace." And you have a whole episode on that, I think, too. Yeah, where he says like it looks like a son of the gods. Yeah, it depends on how you read that, but certain translations tr almost seem like they're trying to put Jesus there. But anyways, the Je Jehovah's Witness will insist that the Greek uses this definite article, H-E, uh, um, I don't know how you'd pronounce that, he, I, hey, I, he. I want to think, I think it's hey. Hey. Anyways, <laughs> just hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, which would equate to a in, in our language, so they'd read it as the word was a god, but uh, merely pointed Jesus as this d divine figure instead of specifying him as the one true holy god. So what a lot of people don't understand is that in the Greek, and this actually caught me off guard when I first studied this, because when I saw it, I was like, oh, that definite article, that is in there. Oh, no. <laughs> it does say a god. But so when I actually looked into this more, uh, the Greek actually uses definite articles for proper nouns in general. So when it says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it actually would say the God of a Abraham, a Isaac, and a Jacob. So, and now that's clunky to translate in English because we don't need a definite article to go, hey, this is a proper noun, this is a particular person or place. We just say it. 
So they, yeah. the translators don't translate that into English because it would make it weird, awkward, and clunky. Which Abraham was it, though? <laughs> A Abraham? <laughs> Just was, one of them Abrahams. Are you, about, are you talking about the one that God made a covenant with, or are you talking about my second cousin from two years ago who divorced my sister? <laughs> or that guy that made my Amish furniture. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this... So the whole thing was definite article. So when someone says a God, I think it's important that you point that out. So rather it would mean every time such, if the Jehovah's Witness is going to be consistent in this, then you have to be like, well, then why is it that your translation doesn't put that a in front of every single time a proper noun is mentioned? So, and that is actually something that um, I wish more people knew. I think it would actually be better for Unitarians to understand that that, word, that particular word is used more often. So that way they have a better argument against it if anyone pushes against it. Now, Unitarians, I don't see using that argument as much, by the way. I see most of them using the, um, at least in my experience, maybe because of my Unitarian friends and people I've interacted with are from the Jewish community. They use more of the mystical Jewish approach in John chapter one. Yeah. Now, we as Westerners, we're going to probably push the more literalness and the, what we call the plain reading of the text. And be like, well, I think John meant what he said. And he and so what you should do as a Trinitarian is always push the literalness there if you want to stand a chance there. Otherwise, they're just going to dismiss it. And, so, And the Jehovah's Witnesses, too, they're using their New World translation, right, where it is – it's if you do a little bit of research, you can say it's it's very deceptively translated so in bad. specific spots. And they've had to modify it over time because they keep running to like, oh, shoot, we missed this. Oh, shoot, we missed this. Oh no! We use the concordance from from the King James, and that actually <laughs> argues against our point against the Trinity. So yeah, get rid of that part. So it, there's just a, honestly a little bit of laziness that if you follow kind of the, the history of the New World Translation. So um, that's a great point to bring up. You go, well, it doesn't do that here or here or here or here. Just this one specific verse that you're trying to make a point at. Yeah, just so that way you can avoid the force of the argument. And that's the thing. It's like you have to start just trying to reinterpret the Greek the entire time, all the time, in order, or the Greek and Hebrew, and just always try to retranslate it to make your point. You're probably not making a very strong point. And to risk offense here, if it's wrong for the Jehovah's Witness to put a God to prove their point that Jesus isn't God, then it's wrong in John to say, I am the I am, when you're trying to make your point that that's Jesus. Right, when he never says Be that. Be consistent. What does the text actually say? Not try to add words and make it sound different so that your point is made. Right, because if all we had were things like John chapter 8 or Romans chapter 10, we wouldn't say, we wouldn't be Trinitarians. We'd believe that he's a divine being or an agent of God. So we need to use these other texts like John chapter 1 to make our case. So, um, so anyway, with that in mind, John chapter 1 is a very strong case for Trinitarians to use if they would like. Um, and I would recommend using that with, coupled with a few others, okay? So uh, Matthew 28, 9 says, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Oh. Uh-oh. And we're not supposed to bow down before, what, any other gods before me? Is that how that goes? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, forgive the cheek, okay? I'm being a little cheeky here. But who else are we to worship? We are clearly commanded not to worship anyone else besides the Lord our God. So when they fell down and worshipped him, well, I think that's a good point. Whenever it mentions that people worshipped him, I think that's a great place for you to focus in on as a Trinitarian and start pressing, who are we to worship? Is this not idolatry? If he's not God, is this not idolatry? This would be idolatry. So he has to be God. Otherwise, we have to say that these people are sitting. And if he is, and if he is God, if he isn't God, then why is he receiving the worship? 
So that would be okay. You'd make the case that, well, that's the case. If he's not God and he's accepting the worship, then he's a false Messiah and he's a false Christ. And he's completely, obviously, got a political agenda. So now I know there's other things. So, so let's talk about this for a second. Let's talk about this because I know my Unitarian friends and others might be like, yeah, but you're misrepresenting my thoughts. Cool. I'm just letting the Trinitarians know how to where to push. Now, let me tell you guys what's going to come your direction, Trinitarians. Okay. So others will say this merely means to fall prostrate. Okay. If you, and to show deep respect as one does for someone like a rabbi. This would seem a strong response to be worshipped, which is proskuneo, as God would be, uh, to be worshipped as God would be heresy and get him killed. However, so that's the thing, right? So it, this is a strong case, right? Let's be honest. Like proskuneo could also mean to fall prostrate or show high reverence. It doesn't necessarily mean worship as God, okay? So if you push on this, you might hear proskuneo brought up, Um and they'll be like, no, that just means you should fall prostrate and show deep respect, not worship necessarily as God. So then what you should instantly do is flip to a parallel proof text, such as Hebrews chapter 1, 4 through 6, says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all angel, like all God's angels worship him. So you go, okay, great. <laughs> so just proskuneo means fall prostrate and show high reverence to a rabbi. Cool. But what about when angels, <laughs> when angels and others worship him? So that should be the next thing you go to. So who else is to be worshipped if not God? Even the angels worship him, and it seems like God is, uh, the Father is commanding this, right? Notice as well in Revelation how many times he is amidst the throne and worshipped with God, such as Revelation 19, Revelation 7, things like that. To show the amount of reverence to anyone besides God would be utmost idolatry and would seem Thus, Jesus must not just be a figurative son of God, but a son of likeness and in essence. Otherwise, you, you start running into this whole, oh my goodness, is this idolatry? I don't, at what point is too much worship to Jesus versus the Father? I think in general, we're almost so um, careful about idolatry that it will even accuse people of it for different things, not even close to being prostrate or worshiping something. They'll say, Oh, you watch too much TV. That's idol worship. You only do this idol worship. You are always focused about your career and money. You're making money. You're idol. So I think if, if that's our standard and Jesus is not God, then they are really, really, really guilty of idol worship here. <laughs> then it really starts getting like, ooh, ooh. We're, we're in dicier territory, right? Yeah. So um, I think it's important there. So now uh, a couple things I do want to warn you about what Unitarians or Arians uh, will say about these passages. So one, again, proskuneo, fall down and worship, right? Or just show high reverence. So in uh, Hebrews 1, what they're going to point out is that having become, at, having become as much to angels. So they would say, you know, there's a change here. He became this probably after resurrection. As the name he has inherited, so it was given to him, is more excellent than theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? 
So in other words, this was also that was get, that he became and was given to him, not necessarily something that he had with the same essence of God from eternity past. That's what they're going to be pressing on. So what you need to be pressing on is the nature of worship, if you want to make a decent case, right? So they're going to be pointing that out and that God allowed him to have this much reverence, and you want to be pointing out that to show that much reverence to anyone else besides God is idolatry. That's what you're going to want to do, okay? Um, so uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, many of us are very familiar with this passage. Brian, you want to read this one? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Whew. <laughs> so, a lot there. Um, so, Jesus, we see, was subordinate to the Father by emptying himself, right? Emptying himself and becoming in the likeness of men. So that makes no sense unless he was uh, was some form of divinity beforehand, right? Why is he becoming something? Why? Why is he? What is he even emptying of himself? <laughs> um, so there must be some sort of divinity here. God gave him the name above all names, which is reminiscent of things like King of Kings that we see mentioned, right? He'll become kings, Lord of Lords, and if God Himself is called the Lord, right? Not remember a Lord, remember because Kyrios and Lord in general means authority, but if He's called Lord of Lords, well, that means He's the best of all the Lords. Does that mean He's above God the Lord? Well, I don't think so. So perhaps He's God Himself, as maybe is a good way to put that, mm. um, right? So. King, so it's very reminiscent of that, king of kings. Well, if God himself, the father, is the king, and he is king of kings and lord of lords, well, then it's a good way to go, well, king, kings, lord of lords, God is, the father is a king, and lord, he's a lord. Well, if Jesus is at the top of all those, then he is equal with God, which would probably mean he's God himself, because there's no other greater being than God himself. So it's a good way to go break that down. Jesus' name cannot be above all names, including God. The highest name is God himself. Thus, this could be deduced rather easily that Jesus is God, is God, the, God in the flesh, the son of the Holy Trinity. Okay, So it's a good deduction to make here. Uh, now, I do want to point out what might come your way in this passage a little bit, because I want to equip you again. That's uh, This isn't me attacking the Trinity. It's me letting you know what's coming your direction. All right? So... Um, having this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who th though was in the form of God, they would just point out the form, right, in emanation, did not count equality uh, with God a thing to be grasped. So even though he had the form of God, he wasn't actually equal with God. He didn't think that was something he could grasp. Um, so instead, he emptied himself by crucifixion, by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay? So that's what he, they would be saying here. And being found in him human form, he, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. So they'd be saying, see, here, God has highly exalted him. Not God has exalted himself. They'd point that out. Um, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So he, and keep in mind that this is given to him now, right? After a resurrection, they say, now he's given him this name above all other names. But it, it, they would say that it is implied here that it is a name above all names besides God himself. So in other words, he's representative of the Father. 
So I just want you guys to be aware of what would be coming in your direction. But again, what you should be doing is pushing a, that more literal approach and uh, asking on whose nature are we talking about uh, as far as being king of kings and lord of lords and what does it mean to have the name above all names. Is that a, what do you think there? Yep. I think you, you summed it up good. All right, cool. Don't have anything to add. Home run. Uh, John chapter 20, Brian? John 20, 28 through 29. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So this conjunction here seems to be calling Jesus God. Others might say Thomas was so aghast and said, uh, my Lord, who is Jesus, right? My Lord and my God, who is the Father, and say is creating a distinction. So we would say that he says, my Lord and my God, referring to only Jesus, my Lord and my God. You know, you're my Lord and you are my God. Others would say that he's saying my Lord as in Jesus and my God. So he'd be making a distinction here. So really comes down to how do you interpret that phrase, right? Um, however, I think if you push uh, to just the my Lord and my God, if he's talking to Jesus, doesn't it make more sense that he's talking to the person in front of him as, as in my Lord and my God? I think if you push that, you'll be doing yourself a favor for the Trinitarian side and making a stronger case for yourself because he's referring to Jesus. Yeah. I just don't see – that seems like something weird to say. Maybe we're just way too culturally distinct from that. But it'd be like, oh, oh, Peter and God – not not separate, not different, or not. Or those are different. They're not the same. I just was really excited to see Peter, and then I also said, "Hey, God!" Like it doesn't make any sense to me. Right, it's like just like a I, weird like thing I, to say. Like if, I, if I thought you died and you came back, I was like, "Oh, my Brian and my God!" Like you'd be like, "What? I'm not your God." <laughs> or are you talking about God? Like what? Do you, what was that? Like I just feel like it's a very. It would be very awkward and clunky, especially since this was right after the resurrection, right? Yeah, he's seeing who a guy who's supposed to be dead. <laughs> Who they've been saying this whole time, hey, this guy's more than just a man. And now look, he's standing in front of him. Yeah, right. So it's almost like the deity of Christ became more real to Thomas, I feel like, in this moment. Yeah. Like maybe Thomas was more of a doubting Thomas in general. was like, yeah, I believe he's Messiah. But he didn't quite connect all the dots. And at this moment, he's like, my Lord and my God. Oh, my goodness. It finally hit him like a freight mm -hmm. train. And does that, oh, I guess maybe Thomas wasn't saved beforehand. Who knows? Um <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> snarky. Um, but anyway, so was Tom. So again, was Thomas not saved though? Really? Let's be honest. Was he not saved until he had this revelation? I don't think so, because I think God's patient with us in our intellectual understandings. God is God. He's an eternal, almighty, all-powerful being. You think we're going to be able to understand it fully? He literally says, my ways are above your ways. So it's like, I, don't, I, I might not be able to fully grasp your nature and your being. In fact, Thomas Aquinas said that God's... Uh, um, God is, what is it, um, incomprehensible in his essence. So we have, we have to understand him through analogy. So it's like, if that's the case, then like, you know, perhaps maybe God's a little bit more gracious in some of these areas. Um, another uh, place that this parallels well with and actually helps make a case for Trinitarians as well is Titus 2.13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, I've heard uh, Arians and Unitarians and uh, um, others say that this phrase is clearly making a distinction. He's saying our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But again, I feel like that makes it just actually sound kind of clunky that, uh, from our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, because it seems like he's just kind of giving Jesus all these titles. 
Um, it seems like it would be an unnatural way to say that. Um, and I, of course, that's an argument from like intuition or seeming, but I think that's a pretty solid case as opposed to just saying and must clearly mean a distinct being. Well, and the appeared part just seems kind of weird because making a, they're talking about the appearance of Jesus and this was, this was a sign of the gospel and their hope and God the Father didn't appear as part of that. So in the most literal sense, and I think we keep going back to that, if you read this literally, it just it really screams the Trinity at you. Right, which is exactly why the Trinity was concluded by a great many church fathers and many Christians today. So if Jesus is truly... Now, and here's where you can make a conclusion just with some of these verses that we've used. If Jesus is truly King of kings and Lord of lords, and God is called the King and the Lord, then it follows that Jesus, whose name is above all names, is God in the flesh. It's a pretty, pretty decent conclusion there. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, <laughs> so who were all things created by in Genesis 1-1? Again, God. So right here we see, and so what, what a lot of people do is they'll focus like Unitarians or Arians. They'll say he was the image of the invisible God, so he wasn't God himself. We're all image bearers too, right? So he's the, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. They're going to push the firstborn pretty clearly, right? Pretty, pretty literally. For by him all things were created. But it says... Notice how it says something different than through him here. It says by him. Mm -hmm. so, so what oftentimes what they'll do is like, yeah, he was the firstborn and uh, he was the firstborn, first created being. And then through him, which is through the Torah, the word of God, were all things made. So, and of course, we all know that because he was, he spoke the world into motion, right? I, you know, God said, let there be light. And there was light. He used his word to do that. So therefore it was through Jesus he did this, but he, Jesus isn't God. That's what they will be saying here. So, but what I find interesting is that this passage passage says, for by him all things were made. Not through, by, bit different. We see through and by both used. Well, we all know that all things were created by God, right? That's very clear in scripture many times, Acts 17 and others. So for by him all things were created. Okay, well, if this is Jesus, then Jesus must be God. So one could also argue that Elohim, I've heard this one, and I don't think it's the strongest case. I just want to make sure we're clear on this. I think this is something you can use to bolster your case, but it's not one of your things you should be using for your case, if that makes sense. So the word Elohim is in the proper plural tense. So that means that there is a plurality in God being used, and thus all things by God, but through Jesus. What they'll say is that in Genesis, when it says, uh, let us create man in our own image, uh, so many Trinitarians would be like, see, there you go, Elohim, plural tense, here we hear it, see a plurality within God himself. So what they'll point out is, obviously, there's the uh, 
Michael Heiser divine council view, but there's also this idea of a royal decree. Like, we declare of this world, where we declare would just be a royal decree. So they would, he's speaking in plurality as a royal decree. So I want you to be aware that they're not going to necessarily see Trinitarianism there, which is why I wouldn't use that as your case, because actually a lot of scholarship has shown it probably means the royal we in its context. It's probably the best way to put it. Um, so there's a lot of scholarship, even amongst Trinitarians, they're like, yeah, I don't think that's actually a good way to go about it. But you could use it to bolster your case, but only bolster, not, not for your, if that's your foundation, you're going to struggle. Um, so anyway, just letting you know some things, some, tr some things that are available to you. But then also, again, firstborn is more of a title of preeminence is what they'll say than anything else. So they're like, see, he's just preeminent. That doesn't mean he's God himself. So what you want to do is also compare this with Revelation 4.11, where it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So you want to point to these areas where it says, Jesus created, God created. They must be the same. Okay? Yeah. By his will they were created. Mm-hmm. So for in him all the fullness, and then here we see, I think this is just like, this is your, this is a strong statement for Trinitarians. Yeah, I think, and I think, so Colossians 2.9, I think is essentially a summary statement of this longer paragraph that we just read from chapter one, where it says, for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And some, some uh, translations, I think, will put that as Godhead dwells bodily. Um, right. So right there we have, yeah, so we have um, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So there's the fullness of God, fullness of his being and his deity, because that what else would be the fullness, right? And then Colossians 2, 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, right? Fullness of God, deity dwells in Jesus' body. And that seems very specific and is, a, again, a summary statement. So these are stronger cases for the Trinity. Not Romans chapter 10, not John chapter 8. Those are weak areas. These are stronger areas, okay? Let's go with the stronger cases if you're going to argue for it. Um, Romans 9, 5 also, you know, the Calvinist favorite passage, Romans 9. <laughs> but there is actually a really good passage here. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all and blessed over all for, uh, forever. Amen. Sorry, God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Christ is God over all. Now, just so you know, the New American Standard Bible, this Greek, actually, people have argued about this. And Nick Quint, actually, a New Testament theologist, actually just put out a video discussing mm. the Greek in this passage. Fun we'll fact. I like that description. Yeah. So um, he says, uh, who's are, the NASB says, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever, all men, as opposed to he is God overall. So just so you know, there is a bit of a of a translation difference there and how people want to go about translating that, but doesn't mean you can't go to Romans 9.5 for a stronger case for God, right? Him being God. So the again, the way the grammar is rendered, uh, many scholars say it makes more sense to say Christ who is God over all. And again, our friend just uh, Nick Quint just did a video on this. Uh, so anyway, and then finally we have Re Revelation 1, 17 through 18, when it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. So again, we see this idea of high reverence. So um, 
Then now, so again, I think we made some good, strong cases. Those are areas you want to go to and study deeper on. Again, I'm just giving you the bird's eye view. We're doing like a breeze through. Better way to defend the Trinity. Here's the areas you should go. Here's the, the weaker areas. Here's where you need to strengthen yourself. Study these out a little bit deeper. I am hoping to just get you a, a head start on it, okay? Not a deep dive of every passage. Not the point of this. Um, now let's talk about the Spirit. Because remember, in order to prove the Trinity, you have to prove the, that Jesus is God and that the Spirit is God. Those are the areas you need to go. So, um, John chapter 15, verse 26. Uh, but the helper, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And again, John 14, 26 shows this helper is the Holy Spirit. And notice how it gives him a, per, uh, a masculine personal pronoun, right? Who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. I think this is where it's more important when you are identifying those distinctions between the Father and the Holy Spirit, I think are more important than identifying the distinction between the Father and the Son. Because most Unitarians are pointing to the Holy Spirit saying, this is just God's Spirit. They're not putting personhood with the Spirit. So when you have this identity difference with the Holy Spirit and the Father, I think that's actually a stronger case. Right. Agreed. So... Um, Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Well, that's fun because the Spirit is equated with being its own person in this passage. Helper, comforter, Holy Spirit, yet are, um, are also called the Spirit of God. So we have the Helper, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and it is called He. He's given a personal pronoun, and it's called the Spirit of God, while also referring to Him as the Spirit of Christ. Oops. <laughs> it would seem that these are saying He is a distinct person amongst the being of God. By the transitive property of Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> so Jesus equals God. There really go. fascinating way. It was like when you look at this, you go, this is actually really interesting how these all are connected to each other. Um, so the spirit, again, is equated as a person, and we see him equated as spirit of God and the spirit of Christ. Um, Hebrews 9.14, how much more will, be, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So again, here we see that the spirit is eternal, which is a trait of God. Only God can be eternal, right? Um, so he is given a name, therefore personhood, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this is called a name. And why is it that the Father and the Son would have their own specific names if they're totally distinct beings? And the Spirit's like, oh, no, no, that's not a distinct being. It's its own, it's just a general presence or blessing. It seems very strange to mention yeah. two d distinct persons and then be like, oh, and this general presence. It's, it's a little weird. Unless you go, they're all distinct persons. But if we all see that they're all equated as God, which I think we already see that they have, you kind of get this idea that, oh, they're all God, but there's three distinct persons. Um. Yeah, right. and the name of and then just being an attribute of God doesn't make any sense. Right. So again, this could be used of a non-person, but it would seem weird here to mention a non-person with two persons. <laughs> <laughs> Better, it makes more sense to mention three persons. I'm just, just naturally speaking. 
He also, we see in Romans 8, 26, that he intercedes on our behalf, which is very much something that's like, oh, so the Spirit of God is interceding for us, so he's doing something, he's active, which is why I was saying that if you're saying the deity of Christ is necessary for salvation and understanding his nature, then you also have to do the same thing for the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. So if you misunderstand the Spirit's nature and you can't be saved, then misunderstanding, uh, no, and you can't, let me rephrase that. If you can misunderstand the Spirit's nature and still be saved, then why can't you misunderstand the Son's nature and be saved? To me, it seems like we're trying to, we're, we're, we're speaking on both sides of our mouth. We're overemphasizing one over the other, and I believe the Trinity is one God. And to just discount one over the, you know what I mean? I'm misunderstanding natures here and there, but prioritizing one as salvation necessary versus the other, I think, is a, yeah. a misnomer. And I think, too, when Unitarians, right, they're, they're focusing on the distinction between the Father and the Son and go, how is, how is the Son talking to God the Father if they're the same as he's talking to himself? But then you have, but then they would say that the, the Spirit of God and the Father are one entity, not distinct persons. Then you have the same problem here. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is interceding to himself. That That argument can't be used in opposite directions there. So you have to... If you're going to use that and go, see, if Jesus is talking to the Father, they can't be the same Godhead, then then you'd have to have a problem here with the Spirit and the Father being distinct. Mm -hmm. So now what I can say is that some people might be like, well, he's a distinct person, but he's not maybe God, right? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe they're going, they'll parse those passages a bit differently. So notice again, the Spirit is equated with God, though, in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Notice how he has equated, he also equated with God in uh, the Spirit with God in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. <laughs> so again, it was like, okay, that's interesting, right? Like it is. It's, uh, we're, we're seeing more of a... Uh, a similarity here. So now let's take a real quick look at God's nature. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So if we have the Lord who is the Spirit, and we have Jesus uh, referred to as the Lord of Lords, and we have Yahweh, who the Father, who is called the Lord, and the Lord is one, this makes people go, well, then they must all be one being, three persons in one being. That's where you would go. Now, what the Unitarians would say is that the Lord is one, so he can't be other persons. That's what they're going to say. So this is what annoys me when people are like, well, they're just try not being, trying to be biblical. I'm like, no, they are. They're trying to be biblical. This is where the debate takes place. Yeah, their focus on monotheism is above these other parts of the distinction between right, they're thinking that, they're Jesus think, and the Holy Spirit. They think monotheism... It, uh, and Trinitarianism are incoherent. They think that uh, Trinitarianism teaches a sense of too much plurality and too close to polytheism. So they would say, no, that can't be monotheism. Um, it must, so therefore, they have a wrong interpretation. Monotheism, the Father is only God. The Spirit of God, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is just God's 
active presence, that, which is also God because that's his active presence since he's omnipresent. And the son is just simply his agent, his divine son, his quite literal son. So they're all, we're all trying to be biblical here. Um, so it's better for you just to know how to respond to it and know how to defend your position. Now, whether you like my, what my statement there, whether you agree with my statements there, doesn't really matter. I hope, if anything else, that the rest of the stuff is helpful. <laughs> yes. So um, then in Zechariah 14, 9, it also says, and the Lord will be our king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And so right here, when I talk about the Lord, it's a tetragrammaton, okay? The four letters, um, well, what many people call Yahweh. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Now, of course, Unitarians will say this is given to him, so therefore he's representative again. However, again, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, and quickly, let's mention 1 Timothy 6, 14 through 15, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So again, right here. Okay, sure. <laughs> so, okay, you can say it's given to him. But also, again, what do we see here? The three mentioned all to be done in the name of. Again, it's weird to mention two persons and not two persons and one not person. Or it makes more sense to mention three distinct persons, who we've already shown uh, seems to refer be all explicitly called God in one way, shape, or form. But then also we see again the only sovereign. So he who is so the our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Hmm. <laughs> Again, this seems to be a very strong deity claim, right? He is the only King of kings, the only Lord of lords. Blessed forever is he is the only sovereign. And those are, of course, words that we only see mentioned to God. So it's better to say that. So for the Trinitarian, these are better areas you need to be pushing. Not these other silly areas I saw Trinitarians doing. And I was like, I want to argue me on your behalf. Here, here's some <laughs> verses. Go. Okay, no, you're still you're swinging a miss. Okay, let me help you. Because <laughs> honestly, even though I don't believe that one has to completely affirm the Trinity to be saved, and I know many people disagree with us on that. Yeah, that's fine. And that's fine. However, um, I will say, you can go ahead and disagree with me on that, but the very fact that so I can, I know I can argue the necessity of the Trinity for salvation better than half the people that were arguing against me was kind of sad to me. And I'm not trying to say this in an arrogant way. No, I think it just shows how complicated this is. And I think the, when you think back to when you were saved and did you have this fullness of understanding? Maybe you, maybe you did, maybe you did, but I think we can at least show that it's, it's quite complicated. It's quite nuanced. There's different views. And I think we're just lucky to have the benefit of 2,000 years of church tradition that have mostly settled this argument. Right. And then think about it. Like, if all you've interpreted is one way, then you're having a hard time seeing the other views. Mm -hmm. you're just, you just are. And um, I know people who were raised in, as Jehovah's Witnesses eventually left, and they still believed uh, as in, like a 
partial Aryan essentially, and took a while to have a conversation to get them out of that. But they left the Jehovah's Witnesses because they realized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and other places were saying that they were saved by faith, not by works. They're like, no, my faith, not my works saves me. Jehovah's Witnesses keep pushing my works. No, it's by faith. And so mm -hmm. then they really latch onto this faith salvation. It's so exciting for them. And then it's like, oh, but you're not actually saved until you actually believe this. It's like, well, they were, they didn't, they were deceived and they studied this for hours on the opposite end. You can't expect them to flip that switch overnight. Um, and I don't think God does. I think there's God is merciful. And I think God makes it very easy for us to be saved, you know, recognize Jesus Christ as Lord, as our authority and believe that he, would, he was, he lived a good life, a perfect life died and rose again for our sins. I think God actually makes it really easy. And that's awesome. We should be happy that God makes mm -hmm. it easy. Um, so anyway, again, the controversy has never been if the Father is God. Everyone agrees there. The question is whether the Son and the Spirit are equated as God and thereby share in eternality and essence. The, these passages we have shown are far better ways to argue for it than what many others seem to use. So if you're going to use those other passages that we talked about before, you first want to use these stronger passages and then use those weaker passages as a way to strengthen your case, but not as the foundation of your case. Um, so again, however, these are very complex passages that are explaining many of the machinations of how God works, how the Trinity might work, and the passages regarding how one is saved are usually quite simple. Believe in the death, burial, resurrections for sins, and the monotheistic God, and you will be saved. It doesn't mention that how you have to understand his perfect nature. Um, all, all the perfect parts of his nature, right? Obviously, you have to understand that he is perfect and good, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't offer you salvation. But want to make sure, because I can see someone taking a 13-second clip out of context again and run it with it. So that's why we say a lot of stupid caveats sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes I don't say caveats because I just want to see the internet scream for a minute. I'll be honest. Sometimes I'm like, I'm not going to say anything there because I don't care. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think the people that are going to be that disingenuous with with what we're saying probably aren't at the end of this video. <laughs> probably not. So, hey, welcome to the end. So, again, Scripture says Jesus and the Father are one. Now, I want you to realize this. Unitarians actually will go, yes, they're united. You know, I and my wife are, were made, are one as well. It doesn't mean we're the same being. So they'll point that out. However, I will just say this. Scripture says Jesus and the Father are one. This could be unity, but it could also very well mean that they're ontologically the same being as the church has affirmed for centuries, such as the, uh, the Nicene Creed at the, that we covered at the beginning of this. Now, I think all the passages we covered show the fact that saying I and the Father are one does not necessarily mean unity, but also could very strongly, and I believe does, mean the same essence, which is exactly what the Nicene Creed said, that we believe in the Son of God, who is the firstborn, right, of all creation, God of God, right? So that is our thoughts here. Just a quick overview on how to better defend the Trinity because I was actually kind of frustrated with how people were responding. And it's mainly, I mean, I'll be honest, this is mainly because people felt like it was being slanderous, whereas it's like, yeah. I feel like y'all are just trying to put people down who you just disagree with that on what we think is necessary for salvation. However, the way you're arguing for this is really weak sauce, man. And so here, let, let, me, help, let me help you guys. That way you can go hate on all the people <laughs> with a little, well, hopefully with a better argument. And I'm not saying we're the best at this. I'm just saying we're better at it than what I was seeing. You have, uh, yeah, I, honestly, this has been a fun study for, for us for quite a while. Right. We, we've had, and I think if you go back to some of the content 
um, that we talked about in the Trinity before, you can see that we've, I think we've made a deeper and stronger case the more we study, and I think we all should be doing that. This is part of the whole sanctification process, and I think that's one of the reasons why we don't necessarily think that you have to believe Jesus is God and triune with the Holy Spirit to be saved because it's complicated. And I think that's all part of the sanctification process. I don't think if you don't quite understand that when you're seven year old, seven years old and, and put your faith uh, in Christ, I don't think that you understand this. I don't think you fully understand how this works, and I don't think you could articulate it the way the church does now without the history of the church. Right. I think that's good. It's I think good. it's a good thing. I'm not a- mm-hmm. mad about it. I think it's good that we get to rely on this. But I think also that the the standard for salvation hasn't changed because we have more information. Exactly. And so that's one of the cool parts about it. So when you want read church history, you see people get better and better and better and better at defining some of these things. But does that mean all the people who couldn't define it right or defined it wrongly in the past suddenly aren't saved? I don't think I I can confidently make that statement. Um, and we're going to explain that more in the video that's going to come out right after this one, um, where we're going to explain some of our discomfort while also re- rebuking um, and refuting a claim against us who was using some of these poor arguments. Actually, I think only one of these poor arguments. Just one of them, yeah. And then I heard some of the other ones in other places. So anyway, guys, I hope this was helpful for you. I hope you guys can at least go, oh my goodness, I didn't even see that. Because that's what happened with me when I started first studying this, like, I don't know, when you when you and I become friends, like six years ago, five yeah, years ago? Yeah, it's been a while now. <laughs> Whatever. Like, it's been a long time. And uh, when that was when you and I first started diving into it. And I remember going, oh my goodness, I see that now. I never saw where that confusion was landing because I always read it as a Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. And now I see where, because I was always like, if you're not a Trinitarian, you're an idiot. You're just an idiot. And then I started looking at how they say, reading these texts, I'm like, oh. Kind of like how if you're a Calvinist and you believe someone's not a Calvinist, you just think they're an idiot and can't read Romans nine because um, <laughs> they can't see it from your point of view. Or if you're not uh, if you're not a Calvinist and you can't see how they read John chapter six um, because you're just like, well, they're just idiots and you've never even considered their view before. Kind of the same concept here. Uh, well, a lot of people do with the Trinity. So anyway, it's showing compassion and humility towards our fellow believers, and I think that's part of the foundational reason why this channel exists because we saw so little of it. And uh, so let's give each other some grace. Let's let's get excited about diving into this. And if you're proven wrong on something in Scripture, by Scripture, be excited about that. Now you no longer believe something incorrect. I, that's, I think, the most exciting thing I've had in, in the last several years of, of looking through things like this with you is just, it's like, okay, I was wrong about some things. I'm really glad I learned better. Right. Instead of being defensive, say thank you. Yeah. You know, I've been proven wrong a lot, like a lot. And it's it's humbling. Mm-hmm. It really is. Like, I mean, it's just, to sit there and be uh, argue till I'm right in the face of somebody because I don't go down without a fight. Um, <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going in there swinging and to get the crap beat out of me and eventually go, holy crap, I think you're right. And, then what, you know, that moment when I feel the ground fully fall from underneath me and go, ooh. Yeah. But, but the problem is here is that in this conversation, a lot of Christians would feel the floor fall from underneath them if they're arguing with a Unitarian or an Arian because they have no idea what those arguments are or what, to, what they to identify. So what it happens when it comes up is that they get completely blindsided. And that's why I think a lot of people fall into it. So I think it's... um, And also, I, I think that this, if nothing else, you can at least go, oh my goodness, I see 
where they are, uh, why those people get those confused. And holy cow, you know, maybe, just maybe I can be a bit more compassionate mm -hmm. and not be so quick to cast people into a lake of fire based on some of these uh, hermeneutical misunderstandings and differences. Yeah. So, and again, you don't have to agree with me on this, but at least you guys can maybe see the fact that we are Trinitarian <laughs> and uh, we do defend the Trinity. In fact, it's literally how you and I, that was the very that was first, first thing. <laughs> that was our first thing together, was defending it together as a unit. Yeah. That's where the church split truly was born. It was in that time. We didn't have a channel or anything, but that's where it was born, that was, baby. That was fun. So, yeah, yeah. That was the very beginning of our ministry was defending the Trinity. And uh, so I, that's, I, I think that's probably what annoys me. We're like, you guys don't even know. You all don't even know, and you all say dumb stuff. So not you guys who are listening to this and being wonderful, but you know what I'm talking about. We're talking about those other guys. You know who it is. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> joking aside, guys, thank you so much for listening. Brian, do you have any more to say at the end here? No, I guess don't forget to subscribe so you can see the notification for the next video because that's going to be more controversial than this. Right. So the, the one following this one. Uh, so subscribe. Let us know your thoughts down below and also i know nick craig you've been in our apologetics group and i know you're probably going to watch this um our friend nick craig is it has a ton of stuff defending the trinity i wasn't able to include half of it in the notes just for time's sake but he does some great parallels with in isaiah and some other stuff mm -hmm. so if you haven't joined the church split apologetics facebook group and you can see nick craig doing that in there and asking him questions so i just want to make sure i put a plug on him he just started a youtube channel as well nice. doing fantastic so Thank you for all your guys' work. Thank you guys for watching. Take care, and God bless. Hi, guys. Welcome to The Church Split. My name is... I almost said my name is Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, oh, we have Brian with us today, and I almost said my name is Brian. Who am I? Where am I? What am I doing? <laughs> I have identity problems. Tabby's going to be one second into editing this, and she's already going to be sending this on Snapchat. Yep, she's going to be like, "This is these people are so stupid. Why am I friends? Tabby. <laughs> Tabby, I am ashamed. But to be fair, um, Brian should probably be the host of this, because we all know I can't talk. <laughs> all right. I can't talk either. <laughs> That's true. You actually, you mispronounced Why are we doing a podcast? Why do we do a podcast? Existential crisis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> have you seen all ourselves out like a bunch of girls? And she's gonna be like, "I'm a real man. I'm gonna be the alpha. I'll be the new host." Eh. Although I don't read. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna regret that. Yeah, okay. She <laughs> Excuse me. I read. Blah, blah, blah. I already can hear. It. She's gonna give me a book list of everything she's read, and yeah, it's gonna be a problem. Okay. I'm looking forward to tomorrow so much now. I'm not. Okay. All right. We're gonna get started. Can, can, would you compose yourself? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay, seriously, for real this times. All right, three. <laughs> I can't. We aren't drunk. <laughs> we'll, yeah, I literally have like one sip, and okay, I'm just a, I'm just an idiot. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Are you I'm good? Not ready. You're not ready. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, what, her and Sam when they get like this. Know. Now you know what it's like. Only you guys are like thirty times louder. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. All right. You're okay. going to hide this okay. at the end okay. if we don't okay. watch it. <laughs> okay. Oh, my gosh. That'd actually be a great blooper reel at the end. All right.